that's what I like to look at today. Uh, Non-attachment, clinging, grasping, how does it work, what happened, how can meditation help us dealing with it. And also, I want also to use this opportunity to look a little at, I mean, during this retreat, we basically present some of the techniques of the Vipassana tradition, insight tradition, and some of the techniques tomorrow of the Zen tradition. And often when you read texts from these various Buddhist traditions, you sometimes wonder if they speak of the same thing, because they seem to be using a very different language, very <coughs> different words. And you think, you know, and, and what I found especially interesting in terms of uh, clinging is these two words that you find a lot. Uh, one is mindfulness. I mean, we've talked quite a bit about mindfulness. And that is very much part of the Vipassana tradition. Mindfulness is very vital. I mean, when you sit in meditation, that's what you're supposed to cultivate, to activate, to manifest. Mindfulness. And then you come to the Zen tradition. And in the Zen tradition, they talk of mindlessness. You know, and you think, well, or thoughtlessness. And you think, you know, how can you have the two together, you know? And that's why, for this reason, uh, I want to bring two quotes. One from the Vipassana tradition about mindfulness, and one from the Zen tradition about thoughtlessness. And then see how both of them have something to say about grasping, about clinging. So the first quote is uh, from a, a book by Joseph Goldstein, who is an insight meditation teacher. And that's what he says about mindfulness. In a moment of mindfulness, we are purifying our heart. I mean, did you know you were doing that, you see? Well, you're mindful. <laughs> see, all this week, that's what you've been doing. You've been purifying your heart. It's good, eh? <laughs> so, in a moment of mindfulness, we are purifying our heart. Because in that moment, we are free from greed for the pleasant and free from aversion to the unpleasant. And that's what is mindfulness. So, I'll repeat one more time. In a moment of mindfulness, we are purifying our heart because in that moment, we are free from greed for the pleasant and aversion to the unpleasant. And so in a way, we are not just observing, but we are observing, we are being with the moment in a very different way. So that mindfulness here is very much described as being non-attached in the moment, as being with the moment in a way manifesting, experiencing non-attachment. So that what is interesting is that he said you are free from greed for the pleasant. He doesn't say that you are free from the pleasant. You are free from greed for the pleasant. And you are not free from the unpleasant, but you are free from aversion for the from the unpleasant. And I think this is a very important kind of point to look at. Because if we look at pleasant experience, you know, as you are mindful, you are mindful, oh, this is pleasant. This is a pleasant experience. But then what do we do with that? Do we kind of grasp at it? Do we hold on to it? Generally, we want it to continue. Generally, we want more of it. And, we, and when it's gone, 
we're very disappointed, we're very disheartened. Oh, where has, gone, where has this wonderful meditation state I attained in 1976 gone? You know, 20 years later, where is it gone? You know, you know, it's still grasping at it, still wanting it. And so, in a way, it's kind of looking at that. How can we be with the present without grasping at it? Because I think it's nearly immediate. You know, we have like, if we are in our everyday life, we have a nice, nice experience. And nearly immediately, we say, let's do it again, you know? And very much the idea is that we're going to have exactly the same condition and we're going to have exactly the same experience. When actually, nothing is repeatable. We can have condition, experience, and then we might have another experience. And I think this is sometimes what we do with meditation. If, if we have what we call a good meditation, then generally, you know, we want to have another one as soon as possible, and we want it to last longer. But can we just be with it as it is, just as it is, not doing anything with it, just being with it? And I think then we experience it I think in a, in a more fuller way than if we grasp at it. When, because then I think the grasping brings tension, even in the pleasant experience. And what is interesting actually is that we can even grasp the want, a pleasant which is not, something which is pleasant which does not exist now. How often do you spend your time sitting here thinking of something, imagining something pleasant that you can't have now. And then being very frustrated because you can't have it, but you could really see it in your mind. Oh, how nice it would be to have this, that, and another. It's very interesting because not only do we cling to what is pleasant, we cling to our imagination of what is pleasant, to the image of what is pleasant, which is actually not there. But that's even, even more interesting. And then there is aversion to the unpleasant. And personally, I think aversion is actually grasping in reverse. Because when you have aversion, you generally push away. You reject, you push something away. And in order to push away, you put energy, you put power. You actually give power to that thing you don't like. And it's very interesting, if, I don't know if you noticed, but if you, if for whatever reason you suddenly dislike somebody, for whatever something they've done or whatever, let's say you start to dislike somebody, and what happens when you do that? You become totally fixated on that person. And everything they do, of course, has a kind of like little negative tinge, you know? And you, and you don't see whatever anybody else is... I mean, if you live in community, this is... I mean, this is so obvious, you know? And you're totally focused. And that person is, is in your mind a lot of the time. That person has not asked to be there, you know? I don't think they specifically want to be there. <laughs> but that person is there, so magnified. And it's very interesting that aversion... Actually, when, when we have aversion, we are kind of... I think unconsciously feeling we're protecting ourselves, we're pushing something away. But actually by pushing it away, we are not, we're trying to be free from it, when actually we're doing the opposite. We're actually sticking to it in a negative way. So that it kind of is, 
even more than it is even more unpleasant than it could be. And in that we will also permanentize it slightly. We we'll make it continue more than again it could have been. And so what uh, Joseph Goldstein is saying is that with mindfulness we are trying to purify the heart so, so that in that moment we are free from greed for the pleasant and from aversion from the unpleasant so that we actually engage the pleasantness as it is. We engage the unpleasantness as it is. And I think here, pu purifying here, I think we have to be careful. Because often we, have, uh, we, associate, we associate purifying with purity, with being pure. And then we kind of quickly go on to being saintly or something. When actually I think purifying to me means more that it's pointing out to dissolving, dissolving the grasping. I think that's what he means. When you purify your heart, Actually, what you're doing is that you're dissolving the grasping that in a way forbids your heart to shine through, which kind of block it. And then the other quote is from uh, Huineng, the sixth patriarch of the Zen tradition, a Chinese master of the 8th century. And that's what he says about thoughtlessness or mindlessness. Thoughtlessness is to know and to see all things with a mind free from attachment. So again, thoughtlessness is not to have no thought. Thoughtlessness is to know and to see all things, so that you really know them, you really see them, but with a, with a mind free from attachment. Again, that idea. And then he says, when in use, it pervades everywhere, yet it sticks nowhere. And because often there is this idea that we have, in meditation, we're supposed to have no mind. And then, you know, in a way it's kind of like there is nearly nobody there. When actually what he's saying here is when the thoughtlessness, when in activation, it pervades everywhere. So that with a mind free from attachment, we actually can pervade everywhere. We can be much more spacious, much more connected, much more in touch, in tune with what is around us. Yet, it sticks nowhere. So there is this expansion, but at the same time it's an expansion which, in a way, kind of go, go, go meet things, but do not stick to them, do not fix them, do not hold on to them. So then it kind of can pervade everywhere without sticking anywhere. And then the court con continues. What we have to do to purify our mind, again, purify our mind. And in the Chinese, the word actually in the Pali and in the Chinese, both mean the same. Uh, kita in Pali means heart-mind, and maum uh, shim in uh, Chinese again means heart-mind. So it's kind of in a way this idea of heart-mind. So what do we have to do to purify our heart-mind? And that's what he says. What we have to do is to purify our mind so that the six aspects of consciousness in passing through the six sense organs will neither be defiled by nor attached to the six sense object. So I'll go over this a little. 
So this is, again, this is just a way of categorizing. I mean, it's not necessarily that reality is totally like this. You can categorize things in many different ways. But I think it is just a useful way to look at our experience. So in the Zen tradition, they say that there is a six aspects of consciousness. So that you have the mind consciousness, the ear consciousness, the nose consciousness, the tongue consciousness, the eye consciousness, and the body consciousness. That's just the way they classify it. And then they say that, so that the sixth aspect on consciousness, in passing through the sixth sense organ, so they have this idea that the consciousness passes through the organs of the senses, again, the mind, the ears, the nose, the tongue, the eyes, and the body, that they are neither defiled nor attached to the six sense objects. And the six, six sense objects are thought for the mind, sounds for the ears, smell for the nose, taste for the tongue, visual object for the eyes, and sensation, physical sensation for the body. But, I mean, like this, stated, it sounds possibly a little complicated, though in actuality, what is it talking about? It's just saying that when we are apprehending reality, when we come into contact with reality, with our experience, can we come into contact in such a way that we are not tainted, colored, nor attached to what we come in co into contact with? That's very much what is, this is about. So, for example, with the, with the mind, uh, the organ of the mind, as they call it, the mind consciousness, then you have thoughts. That would be the sense object. It would be the object would be thoughts. And in a way, what, what would it mean to not be tainted, nor to be attached to a thought? It, it actually would mean that it arises in the mind, because that's what the mind does. The mind produces thoughts, but we are not tainted nor attached. Because what do we do generally? Generally we have a thought, and this is true, this is real, this is me. And it's very solid, it's very fixed, and very quickly we are actually colored by it. Whatever the thought is telling us, is actually percolating through the whole body and mind process and actually makes us feel in a certain way. If we just say, for example, you suddenly, for whatever various story you tell yourself or whatever, you tell yourself, I am hopeless. I mean, at one level, it's just a thought. I mean, it's just a few firing in the brain producing this. But I am hopeless. I mean, Right away, you're, taint, you, you're tainted by it, you're colored, you have this, there is this weightiness, there is this kind of stuckness. I know at, um, a few months ago, I had this experience of kind of, you know, suddenly this thought, you know, this is hopeless, I am hopeless. And this was to do uh, with French bureaucracy. I mean, you know, since we moved to France, I, sometimes I wonder we should be in England, but it's wet there. You know, but the bureaucracy is nothing like in France. So what happened is that I'm, we're trying to get medical cover. We've not got it yet after six months. This is another story. And this was the beginning of the process. So, you know, very kind of, you know, courageously, I kind of 
go to see the lady and you know she gives me various forms and you must do this that and another come back in two weeks with everything so you kind of come back in two weeks with everything and so she said ah madame you need this that that and another <laughs> so i called her you come back in two weeks so i come out and i kind of have this wait i am hopeless this is hopeless you know it's kind of like ah and then i thought wait a minute this is only a form you know, I mean, I'm reasonably intelligent. I should be able to deal with this, you know. And that totally changed. So now I still have lots of forms to fill, you know, but I don't feel hopeless. I feel, ah, a form, let's fill it, you know. Let's see if I can satisfy them this time or not. <laughs> Generally, I always forget something. That's part of the thing. But you see, I think that's what they're trying to say, that you see, as soon as we attach ourselves to a thought. We are colored by that thought. It really makes us feel a certain way. And it's kind of, how can we have a thought and not be attached to it? I think this is in a way our challenge when we meditate or when we try to cultivate meditation. Another thing is the, the sounds. You know, we have ears, we hear, we have there is sounds. And it is interesting how we too can be very much, especially nowadays in this modern life, there is so many sounds, you know, we are kind of bombarded with sounds. And I think this is what we're trying to cultivate in Gaia House, kind of, you know, reduce this a little. But when we are in our daily life, how do we deal with sounds, you know, well, especially sounds we don't like? How do we deal with them? I mean, very, we, we attach ourselves to them and then we magnify them through that. And I remember once I was teaching this uh, day of meditation in London. So we were on the heath, we were in this special place which is generally very quiet on a Sunday, no problem. So we sit in meditation and there was a neighbor mowing the lawn next door to the tune of the rock best. So we're sitting there, revolution, and we're kind of, you know, for and as we are sitting here, I thought, this is great. You know, this is an opportunity for them to really kind of try to be with it without attaching themselves to it, you know, to just listen, to just be with that. And so at, at the end, we had the question and answer. So I said, you know, how was it, you know, this, uh, this uh, moment of, uh, of sound? And it was interesting how some really reacted to it, you know, and straight away attached themselves to it and then started to proliferate. Well, if, you know, I am sitting in meditation, it's noisy, it's Sunday, I might well, you know, I might as well stay at home, what's the point of coming, da 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 da, you know, the whole kind of elaboration. And then others said that they just try to, you know, be mindful, to just be with it, as it was. And then they heard it in a totally different way, it was just, in a way, sound, pulsation, and that was that. They were kind of, in a way, not disturbed by it, they were just with it, as it was. Then, it's the same with smells. I think, you know, this quote is trying to point out to all these different places we kind of get stuck, we kind of grasp, and how through that we're actually creating some suffering to ourselves. And smells, I think, is very interesting, how we can again be very, become very colored, very stuck, when we kind of have uh, a very certain smell around us. 
I think if I think now we live in the countryside where I am and there is a farmyard. And for some reason, the neighbor, once a week, burn all her, I mean, this is, you know, the countryside, friends, lots of flowers, birds, da da da. And every week she burns her plastic rubbish <laughs> just next to our terrace. So we kind of, you know, try to lounge there in the sun. And then there is this very strong smell <laughs> of uh, plastic burning. And it's very interesting, because, you know, it's kind of like a ritual now. And it's very interesting to just be with that, you know, to not go through the thing, you know, da 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 da, she could, da, da, you know, what one, you can imagine what can go through, to just be with the smell as it is, you know, to not be, in a way, colored or attached to it in any way, just be with it as it is, because it too passed. Then there is uh, the tongue, the taste. And this is, a, I think, an interesting one you can really try here. To really try, because I think this is something which can be very, you know, uh, taste, tongue, what we eat. We can, there can be lots of kind of attachment there, lots of kind of grasping there. You know, liking certain things, not liking others, and then there is all kind of various things around it. And... Uh, for myself, one of the things I kind of uh, like very much, I love cherries, I love cherries. And I was on this uh, Vipassana retreat, and I thought, you know, yes, let's just be mindful of eating cherries. How can I just eat cherries, you know? Not thinking that I like them, just to eat it. And it's very interesting as an experience to eat something that you really like, and just to be mindful, you know, just eat, just the taste of it, the texture of it, very interesting. It's quite a different experience. I mean, you don't eat as much, actually. <laughs> it takes more time. And kind of, again, to, to see all the association, all the things that we put around food. I mean, there is this wonderful uh, Thai master who says, you know, if you were, I mean, in Thailand it would be bamboo. He said, if you were to eat bamboo shoot every day, in the end, you would really get fed up with them. You know, you, you would say, give me potato, give me potato, you know. I'm fed up with these bamboo shoots. And it's the same with us wanting asparagus, or wanting caviar, or wanting kind of, you know, something special. You know, and we can't get it because we don't have the money or we're not there. And it's interesting even that imagined taste that we really attach to, which then makes a difference to how we taste what we're eating in that moment. It's interesting when we're eating something, and then we compare it to something which would be so much better, and we don't have. It's interesting with food to really observe, try to bring mindfulness or thoughtlessness to it. Just be with it as it is. Then another one is through the eyes when we come into contact with, with visual objects. It's very interesting how very quickly we like it, we don't like it, we kind of again, we kind of attach to the visual object. And uh, recently I have had this kind of interesting experience because we're doing lots of renovation work in our house. And so we needed a little staircase to go into the meditation room than to go into Stephen's office. And for various reasons, we did not really get the one we wanted because uh, 
we're supposed to have this carpenter, and the carpenter being a good French carpenter, never came. <laughs> so, you know, wait. And what was interesting is that he had promised us this beautiful staircase, you know. I mean, I could see the wood and the shape, and, you know, and I don't know what he would have done, but in my mind, there was this amazing staircase, you know, just the right thing, right color, right everything. And then we, he, he never came, so finally we had to ask somebody else to do it. And he did this very ordinary, more than ordinary staircase. And what I found was interesting was that I would have this experience to enter the corridor, see the staircase, and at the same time, this juxtaposed to it was the other one, the one in my mind, you know. And because of that one in my mind, this one was really no good, you know. <laughs> but it was interesting, I could not see that one without the image of it. So in a way, I was attached, I was averse to this one, and I was attached to the image of the other one. And so I had this funny relationship with this, with this staircase for a little while. Till I kind of saw what I was doing, and I said, wait a minute. Can I just be with this one? Let go and kind of try to be with it in a different way. And so it's kind of just looking how even with visual objects, uh, it's very interesting how very quickly, again, they can be grasping. And that too can, in a way, color the way we feel about things. And then there is the body. The, the, the physical sensation. And this is something which, you see, most of the time we don't think very much of our body. I mean, as long as it's in good working order, we don't think about it, you know? You know, it's just generally the mind. I think it's interesting, we have this very strong relationship with what I would call our brain. You know, we kind of generally in our head, doing whatever, and then the body is kind of behind, kind of following it up. And we only, in a way, recognize the body when we have generally pain in it, when there is kind of some very strong physical sensation, then we come back to it and say, wait a minute, you know, this or that is not working, this or that is painful. And again, as soon as there is a pain, it's very interesting to see what we do, as soon as there is a pain, there is this identification with the pain. This is painful, this is me, this is terrible, I'm going to have this forever after. And, and often with that comes a kind of, we tend around the pain and we kind of nearly like scrunch ourselves up, we kind of nearly reduce ourselves. It's very interesting. And I know for myself, the first time I became very aware of that was in Korea, because till then I'd been very healthy. And then I came to Korea when I was 22 and very quickly uh, my stomach was very bad because the food is very spicy, very hot. And so and then I started to have this, this, this very bad pain, and I would have this terrible pain. And it was interesting that I would have the pain, and then my whole body would go, ah, this is terrible, I have pain, you know. Uh, and I would go around the monastery, like kind of half scratched stuff, you know, pull me, pull me. And then there was a very interesting sideline of why me, why me? So why not the next person having it and not me? Very compassionate. So, and it was interesting that kind of, you know, kind of scrunch up feeling, you know, of this poor me, and totally identified to, you know, I am this person who has a terrible stomach, uh, you know, I can barely. 
till one day I thought, wait a minute, maybe this is a suffering. The Buddha was talking about, you know, that there is suffering in life. Maybe that's what he means, this actual, physical, you know, feeling it, suffering. And then I kind of started to, to, to kind of look, wait a minute, I don't feel this all the time. What are the conditions that give rise to it? What are the conditions that don't give rise to it? And then I, I started to work much better with it. But I think that's what they're saying. It doesn't mean that you don't engage with the physical sensation of whatever you come in contact with, but you engage with it in a different way. So that you are really present to it, but within it there is no attachment. And because there is no attachment, actually there can be wisdom. And to me this is kind of the other side of mindfulness, of thoughtlessness, that through having no attachment, then the wisdom can really come out, can really, in a way, engage with the situation in a wise and creative way. And here again you can notice how Huineng says, what we have to do is to purify our mind. Again, the same image, the same words as uh, Joseph Goldstein. Goldstein, so that, again, this idea of purification, but I think this idea of purifying the mind is actually more of how can we make the mind spacious? I think it's not that we have to take the bad things out of our mind. I think it's more that we develop, by not grasping, a spaciousness in the mind. So the mind then becomes much more clear. There is much more kind of vision in it. It's not so kind of blocked up by all the things that are, in a way, kind of stuck to it, or that we're sticking to it. And so now what I would like to look a little is at this process of grasping, of kind of clinging, of sticking. In a way, what happens when we do that, when we kind of hold on to something? So if I can start by just an image. So let's say uh, this is for some reason is special, or it's mine, or it's precious, or whatever. So I grasp at it, I encounter it, I come into contact with it, it belongs to me, or for whatever reason, I hold on to it, I grasp at it. Then what happens if I do this? Two things happen. One thing, the first thing is that I get a cramp in the arm. <laughs> I think, you know, one of the reasons we are, we, we, even if we are not stressed, why there could be a little tension in our life, in our kind of substratum, you could say, of being, is because we st when we stick to anything, we're creating tension. In the same way that me holding on to this, for, and, and in a way, the more I hold on to it, I mean, the, the more grip, like I grip it, then the more quickly I will get a cramp. I mean, this is kind of, if I kind of, you know, the less, the less I do this, then the less cramp-like it's going to be. And if I don't really hold it, then there is freedom, there is movement, and then I can take it, and I can move it to bad. When, if I am like this, you know, <coughs> you know, I mean, there is not much you can do. So in a way, this idea of not sticking, non-attachment, doesn't mean that I get rid of this. Because often, that's often in the spiritual path is that, you know, problem with sense object, get rid of sense object. But that doesn't get rid of the sticking. So in a way, the idea is not so much that we get rid of the sense object, 
all the organ, all the consciousness. It's just that we, we de-stick, we unstick, we open our hand, we kind of, you know, release our hold that we have on our whatever experiences which is happening. Then second thing, if I do this, at the same time that I'm getting the cramp, another thing is going on. And the other thing that is going on is that I cannot use my hand for anything else but that. And this is a very important point, this one. You know, because I am like this, well, I, mean, I can't have a cup of tea unless I start to use my, you know, but let's say I have something grasped there, then I'm really stuck, you know? <laughs> you know, then I'm stuck everywhere. But, and then, what do I do? And often that's what we do. And that's, in a way, I think the main problem with the grasping is that, that by, by grasping at something, we are reducing ourselves to that thing, and in doing that, we're magnifying it. You see, it goes together. It's a very interesting movement. So that, let's say, we come into contact with something, then generally the next movement is we identify with it. This is mine, this is me, this is happening to me. And at that moment, then we reduce ourselves to that. It's very interesting because by, in a way, identifying us, ourselves with it, by sticking to it, we solidify it, we fix it. And then we reduce ourselves, we limit ourselves to it, and then we magnify it, we increase its size. And it's very interesting to notice how this happens in our life. I mean, even at the, the level of just, you know, if we think back of that thing, you know, I am hopeless. If you say to yourself, I am hopeless, and you stick to that thought, in that moment you reduce yourself to that one word, hopeless. And at the same time, you magnify the feeling of it. Instead of seeing that possibly in certain situations you are not too good, or too clever, or not cute enough, or fast enough, or whatever, and that in many other situations you are not like that. You see, I think that's what non-attachment is. is not to get rid of the thing, but to see the thing by not grasping at it, to put it into balance with many other elements in this flow of conditions that form us at any given moment. But any time that we, we grasp at anything, then, I mean, when we could be like that, Indeed, you know, when we could be, as it says, pervade everywhere, then by sticking, we just come back to this very, very small point. And I think that's why it's so painful. In a way, I think grasping is painful, because instead of having this huge potentiality and this huge openness and creativity, we kind of become these teeny, teeny wee things. I mean, we kind of contract ourselves into this kind of little box and then it's kind of like we kind of stuck. So since I have a little time, I thought I would kind of just point out, you know, in a little just to go through various little things 
or various things we stick to, this kind of Velcro quality. How does it manifest itself? What do we do in our everyday life? And I think one thing we can stick to, which is interesting to look at, is our role. You know, the role we might have in our life. We might be a teacher, we might be a mother, we might be a daughter, we might be anything. You see, I think part of our flow of condition is that we have roles. And I think part of the non-attachment would be to flow with, with those roles. At one moment, your mother, next a daughter, next a teacher, next a student, next whatever. You know, just a being watching nature. But it's interesting how, because our role is so important to us, you know, it gives us a sense of worth, a sense of existence, a sense of, you know, being worthwhile to live here. I pay my taxes, you know, very important, you know. I'm a good citizen. Then it's interesting how we can grasp at it. And then it can color the way you are. Because if you grasp, in a way, at being a mother, then you start to kind of mother everybody. Then you might wonder why your friends kind of disappear. You know, or if you are a teacher, you know, and I mean, it's great teaching. You know, they just sit there, listen to you. They don't answer back. It's a great position to be in. But if you do this all the time to everybody, I mean, it's very tiring for yourself because in a way, it limits your creativity. It limits you from learning anything, which I think is a very important part of being a teacher. If one teaches something, one has to learn something at the same time. So in a way, to kind of look how by, in a way, attaching to something like that, then actually we reduce actually the opportunity of it and also the way we are in the world. Another thing we, we stick to, we grasp at, and this is very difficult not to, it's feelings. When you, you kind of, for very good reason or no reason at all, you might feel something, you know, generally, let's say, unpleasant feeling. You can also feel uh, uh, kind of a little heavy, a little, uh, a little, and it's interesting, what do we do then when we feel not kind of, you know, the life of the party? You know, ah, this is great. I mean, when you have pleasant feeling, you don't worry about them. That's what is very interesting. You might grasp them at them totally, but you don't worry about them. Generally, you worry when you have, you know, unpleasant feeling. Kind of this kind of weird, kind of... Hard. And uh, some time ago, I, I had that. You know, suddenly, I had, I didn't know why, I had this funny feeling, kind of little... Uh, uh, a bit heavy, it was in the middle of the chest there, and I had no reason why, I had no idea. There was no story in the mind, there was nothing in the outer condition. And I thought, ah, so it is. And you know, I stayed with it, it stayed for about two weeks, you know, and I would wake up, ah, it's still there, you know. I mean, I would go about my day just noticing it was this, there was this funny feeling there. And then one day, because I, was in, I, because I did something which was interesting, which was stronger, more intense, than that feeling. Then it just went, just disappeared. It was very interesting to see that. That actually, we are feeling when we think, oh, they're there. They're so there. But actually, we solidify them. And I wonder that, although they are unpleasant, can we be with these feelings, with that mindfulness, with that thoughtlessness, that we just with them, as they are, and if, I mean, if we can understand why they're there, then I think we can bring creativity and wisdom. But if we can't understand it, 
can we be with them in a different way, in a kind of lighter? I think that's what this purifying the heart is about, this bringing a lighter way to be with things. And other things we, we have a tendency to grasp at. And I find that very interesting because they're so ephemeral, so immaterial. It's ideas. I mean, ideas, people will kill each other for ideas. You know, I have the right idea. I am Marxist. I'm capitalist. I am this. I am that. And generally, you see, what is interesting with ideas is what happens. Why do we grasp at ideas? What? Something which is I mean, just a few neurons firing in the brain. That's what ideas are. But what do we do? We, generally, we have the idea. There is this idea because of the mind. We, we have a mind and we interact with whatever is around us. And so there is ideas. And then we think, again, this is my idea. Then there is a ne- next movement. This is the right idea. And then this is then the next movement, this is the only idea. And then the next one is, everybody must believe this. And it's very interesting, when you have a discussion, notice how tense you get about, you know, my idea, you must believe this. Because what are you doing? You see, the problem is with the identification. If you say, this idea is my idea, you grasp at the idea, you define yourself to that idea. So if somebody rejects that idea, they're rejecting you. I mean, that's what, you know, you backtrack in that way. Instead, can we have ideas and kind of play with them, be creative with them, but not, you know, restrict ourselves to them? I mean, next time you have a kind of violent argument, <laughs> try to think of this. I mean, try to look how the difference between having a discussion and a dialogue, I think, is that you don't identify, you don't grasp, but you still bring many feelings to the ideas. Another thing, of course, we grasp that. And often this is a recurring question about non-attachment is people, you know? How can we be non-attached and then as partner, as children, as family, be in love, etc. And personally, I think there is no problem. One very, I mean, non-attachment, I think, Actually, I think you need to be non-attached. You need to not grasp in order to really love somebody. And actually, I think that if you don't, then I think the love can be very sticky. Because often, when you love somebody, you will love somebody for very specific things. You know, I love you because you have this, that quality. I love you because you fulfill this needs of mine. This is an even better one. You know, once I had this kind of interesting conversation with a friend of mine who was saying, you know, love, it's all about needs. You satisfy my need, I satisfy your needs, and off we go. And I thought, where? I thought, well, he was not going to go very far. <laughs> and then regularly his girlfriend and him used to shout to kind of vent their frustration through the windows. It's an interesting experience. But in a way, I think this is kind of like the to relating to people, to having relationships, to, 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 to kind of, in a way, as children, as a partner, is a friendship, is can we be with that person, enjoying that person, appreciating that person, being enriched 
by being with that person and not grasp at the person. Because as soon as you grasp the person, you create tension and you limit yourself. Because often we love the person, it's so pleasant to be with them. So we want to be with them all the time. And then you kind of, you know, we limit yourself and limit that person. And I remember, I mean, after being a nun for 10 years, when I got married, and it was a bit of a shock, you know, <laughs> to, to be married, uh, because suddenly there was all these emotions that I had forgotten I used to have when I was 18. I was 32 by then. And it was very interesting because, you know, I got married to Stephen, we lived in a community, and there was many other people. But I would stick to him, like, you know, I would sit next to him at breakfast, lunch, dinner, sit to him next on the canopy, and I was kind of, you know, always with him. Till I realized that actually this was doing two things. This was making him a bit tense and feeling a bit crowded. And the second thing was that he was limiting my interaction. Because I was so kind of, in a way, grasping at Stephen, then I was not allowing myself more relationship with other people. And it's when I saw that, then I kind of stopped doing that. And then, then it was much easier for the two of us to be together, and also for me to grow within my own relationship with other people. And I think often there is this kind of, in a way, interesting romantic idea. I think this is very romantic idea that when you become, you are in love with somebody or uh, you have a child, there is this kind of, you, you must have this osmosis. And it's very difficult for a mother who wants to have osmosis with the child when the child says, I hate you. I want my sweet. I hate you. You don't give me this or that. And it's very interesting because this happens. And then there is all this romantic, the child must kind of do so, the mother must be the da, da But I think, in a way, one has to recognize, and I think that's what this non-grasping is about, is to, to recognize that two people together, coming together because of circumstances, because of love, of appreciation, I think they grow together, but it seems to me on parallel track, so that as the love grows, the, 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 the space between them can grow in richness and can be nurtured. When we are in relationship, when we have children or friends, what would it mean to kind of cultivate non-attachment? I think then we would, we actually what we would cultivate would be appreciation, would be trust. It seems to me trust comes from acceptance. That's another side of non-attachment is acceptance. So non-attachment is not indifference. I think non-attachment is accepting, being with what is, creatively. In other things we can grasp at, and I think can be very painful, is past experiences. This is very interesting how we do that is that, you know, of, and very often, I mean, it can be beautiful experiences or it can be very negative experiences, either way. It's very interesting how in this moment, in a way, this experience is not here. You know, we are just here in this moment. But for some reason, we bring that negative experience, we bring that pain, which might be 10 years ago, 5 years ago, a month ago, a year ago, and we, we stick to it. We stick to it and we bring it here 
And then we kind of, in a way, fix on it. We fix it, and then it becomes very big. And, it, and what is interesting is then it totally overshadows whatever you might be experiencing positively in this moment. I find that very interesting how you're quite okay, things are going relatively well for you. But because you remember that day when that person did this or this happened to me, and I'm not saying that the thing was not painful, and it's not to say the thing did not happen. The thing happened and it was very painful. But can we let it go there? Can we let it be where it is? Can we learn from it? Can be, in a way, can it be the compost for our experience of now? But not, in a way, in total, in total, bringing it here and saying, and often by doing this, we are actually stopping us. Again, this, we reducing ourselves to that, to how we felt then, to how that other person was then, and in this moment, there is no openness. There is no possibility for change. Because how can you now change something that happened 10 years ago? There is no way you can change anything that happened then. No way. It's there. Just as it was. This happened, that happened, that was there. Now you could maybe change the way you look at it. The way you are with it. But... So, so, so it's not to not learn from it, but I think to see if we stick to it, if we grasp at it, if we cling on to it, then in a way we, we solidify ourselves as that person 10 years ago. We kind of in a way totally dissolve any growth, any learning, whatever might have happened all these 10 years that I have lived. So very much to be kind of in a way if we can, try to softly look into that kind of grasping. You know, the grasping we do, and this is worries. And you know, that's, you know, when we, whatever might be at work, or maybe in a relationship with, at the moment, and we worry, we worry. And I can, I, I, I can see this so much nowadays that I live just above my, uh, I share the, the house with my mother and my grandmother. And so every morning I go and see, you know, my, my mother and grandma, I kiss them, this is French, you must kiss, you know, every morning, this is very important. I'm very happy to do it. And so I kiss them, how are you? And then, you know, I generally I say to my mother, oh, how did you sleep last night? And generally, it's very rare when she doesn't say, ah, you know, I was worried about lunch on Sunday. And she spent the whole night, you know, thinking about lunch on Sunday. Or I was worried that you would be cold in the winter. So then she would spend the whole night, you know, thinking, you know. And it's very interesting that. Because, again, we worry. I mean, possibly, you know, there is lunch on Sunday. You have to organize it. You have to think of it. But, you know, how can you be with it in that open spaciousness, that creative awareness? Because if you stick to it, and what I find interesting with worries is that you stick you, there is this concern, there is this situation, there is this or that, and you stick to it. You kind of, you know, you hold on to it. And then by holding on to it, you reduce yourself to just being that, I mean, you become that person who has to fix lunch on Sunday in five-day time for ten people, you know. And, and she has done it thousands of times, very successfully, but still, you know. And you have that worry. And you so 
stuck in it. And then what is interesting is that you reduce yourself and then it becomes a monster. And then you become, ah, oh, some Sunday. Ah, you know? And very interesting how we do that. And, and, it, and there you can, with worries, you can really see it very clearly. How you have that reduction and then that magnification, that amplification. Another thing, and this I think, I mean, I am reading a book on the brain at the moment, and it's fascinating, and it could explain this grasping. And this grasping is culture, you know, cultural grasping. And it might not seem obvious, that's what is interesting. I think this is the last thing, if it ever goes, even with awakening, I don't think that grasping goes. You see, we have this idea that with awakening, enlightenment, we're going to transcend everything. But I think this is the one thing we want to transcend, is cultural upbringing, cultural grasping. Though we might, with wisdom and creative awareness, we could be differently with it. But what is this cultural grasping? You see, you, you generally don't notice it if you stay in the same environment. If you stay in England all the time, you won't notice that you have English cultural grasping. You know? And, but I, I lived in, in Korea for 10 years, and this was one of the most fascinating things for me, was to see that something as ordinary as wringing clothes, I mean, you would not think, you know, there is anything special about wringing clothes. Well, there is a French way of doing it, and there is a Korean way, which of course is a better way of doing it. And it was very interesting, because and what was fascinating for me that I could not do the Korean way, you know. They, they tried to explain to me this was so much better, but physically I could not do it, you know. I, you know, and, and that's when I realized that my way of wringing clothes was not the way, was the French way. And then you had the Korean way of doing it. And it's so ingrained. It's fascinating how these things are so ingrained. I mean, I had a little... Three year, four years old girl showing me the right way of washing clothes. You know, she, she saw me doing it, you know, I was doing whatever I was doing. And she saw me and said, oh, come on, you are hopeless, this is terrible. So she pushed me, she was this tiny tot, pushed me and said, look, you know, this is the way you're doing. <laughs> and I thought that's fascinating because actually there are so many things that are cultural. Even the food we eat, even the way we eat, is very, it's amazing. And we think, no, this is the way. I mean, one interesting uh, sideline is, when you are ill, in England, what do you get? What is it you get? In England, you get marmite on toast. <laughs> Isn't it? When you're ill, you get marmite on toast. Well, in France, when we're ill, we get mashed potato and ham. <laughs> and then you go somewhere else and you get chicken sauce. <laughs> but it's very interesting and you'll be persuaded this is the best thing, this is the only thing, you know, and then you'll have this long argument, discussion about, you know, the best way to deal with somebody who is unwell. Then the last one, the last uh, grasping I want to mention is actually very interesting because this is not something you can take with you. This is really, you know, 
but still we grasp at it. It's uh, places, places, and it will be interesting for you once you left Gaia House, especially if you like Gaia House, and if, especially if you like the meditation room, you know, sitting here, how you go home and you sit in your little cushion in your little corner in your little apartment and thinking, hmm, this is not the same, you know, <laughs> as at Gaia House, you know. The rooks are not there, the kind of silence is not there, etc., etc. It's very interesting how things like places which are so there in a way, something we can just appreciate. But it's very interesting how when you go on holiday, what do you say? Oh, Parthenon, not bad, but not as good as the Grand Canyon, you know, or whatever you might do. And it's very interesting how, how we, we ask places, we go somewhere, and actually we can't really just be with it as it is. We generally often have another place, either how we imagine it should be, and that's one thing we also cling to, imagine places, or some other place which this place is not like. Very interesting. Instead of just being with it just as it is. So in a way, that's what I would kind of uh, encourage you to remember possibly those quotes. Maybe I'll uh, read them one more time. In a moment of mindfulness, we are purifying our heart because in that moment, we are free from greed for the pleasant and aversion to the unpleasant. Thoughtlessness is to know and to see all things with a mind free from attachment. When in use, it pervades everywhere, yet it sticks nowhere. So, thank you. This is my little entertainment for the day. <laughs> Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.